Hello, I'm Oliver Wang. And I'm Morgan Rhodes. You're listening to Heat Rocks. Every episode, we invite a guest to join us to talk about a heat rock, you know, some flammable arson. I just rip off Morgan's adjectives <laughs> because I don't have any creativity <laughs> myself. Today, we will be deep diving together into Most Def's 1999 solo debut album, Black on Both Sides. I strike the empire back. I strike the empire back. Fuck the empire, high flying like the Millennium Falcon. Piloted by hand solo. I never roll for dolo. From a no means. Tonight we're gonna party like it's 1999. October 12th, 1999. The day an album called Black on Both Sides was released on Priority and Raucous Records. Most Def was the MC, the New Danger and he was nice on the mic. Showed up with deep end of the pool social consciousness, hot beats courtesy of a who's who of hit-making beat junkies, shout out to Orange County, and wordplay, metaphors, syntax, talk soup, son. Representing BK to the fullest, his debut project covered many schools of thought across many jams, with more well-placed samples than that sees candy up at the Fox Hills Mall. Oh. And as its title suggests, this album is black. Black thought like the roots in them. At 500,000 units copped, it's black and gold. Black without apology. Black before think pieces and black Twitter. Black in the intro. Black for Brooklyn. Black for 71 minutes. And black on both sides. Yo, I'm trying to make a dollar out of what makes sense. Add it up so my daddy, I'll be a rich man. You never know when your fake gon' switch hand. Get today's solid ground out of yesterday's quicksand. To talk about black on both sides, we invited writer Marcus Moore, a native of Washington, D.C., now living in Brooklyn, who happens to be here in Los Angeles for his first time. That's extraordinary. Yeah, first time ever. Uh, Marcus is a senior editor at Bandcamp, which I like to think of as the raucous records of the online music world, just minus Rupert Murdoch money. <laughs> he's written for The Nation, NPR, The Atlantic, Pitchfork, and he's currently writing a book about an artist that may be familiar to some here in Los Angeles, Kendrick Lamar. Marcus, welcome to Heat Rocks. Hey, thank you very much. So I got so much to say about Mostef in this moment. I'm going to stop myself and just turn it over to you to open with, why did you want to talk about Most Def and what makes Black on Both Sides a heat rock for you? Well, for me, Most Def, especially around Black on Both Sides and in the new danger five years after that, he's always been the counterculture mm. where, you know, when you think back to hip hop in the late 90s, it was all about, you know, baggy jeans, Tim's, oversized hoodies, things like that. And that that's what rap was. Yeah. And I love that rap. Yeah. But the thing is, most he came in with this totally different sound. It was almost like a it was almost like soul music in the vein of like Roy Ayers and mm. Weldon Irvine. And he he just showed that there's this other side of hip hop where at the time, if you remember, he was singing on songs and oh, people yeah. couldn't really get behind that. They were like, wait, hold on. Umi says, I don't know how I feel about this. I don't want to write this down. I want to tell you how I feel right now. I don't want to take no time to write this down. I want to tell you how I feel right now. Hey, tomorrow may never come. For you or me, life is not promised. That's why I always love most, because it always connected with me, because I've always been that person where... You know, I love all the popular music of the time, but I've always been the guy like, well, what about this over here? Like, let's pay attention to that. So yeah. for me, that's what most Def was. Yeah. And how is this album in particular? Like, again, what makes it a heat rock for you? Because I feel that more than his other records, it's 
it's autobiographical in a way that I don't mm. think he was able to attain mm. on other records. And not only is it about him, but it's about his neighborhood. Like mm. if you if you close your eyes, you can almost see like 1990s Brooklyn. Mm. And admittedly, I'm going to sound like a, t- a total tourist right now, but I've always loved the album. But when I first moved to New York a couple of years ago, I was living in Fort Greene. And that's when it really locked in for me. Like, okay, this is about all of this. You can almost see the neighborhood changing over as you listen to the record. So lyrically, I felt like it was always, he was he was at his pinnacle on that album. And musically, the same thing. I mean, one song flowed right into the next. He had Rhodes on it. Mm-hmm. And it just, it almost resembled soul and jazz at the same, like a late 70s soul record to me. Yeah. What are some of the differences in the Brooklyn that you maybe anticipated mm-hmm. based on having grown up listening to so many Brooklyn artists, including most from the 90s, as opposed to the Brooklyn that you actually ended up living in? Well, admittedly, I, I have to lean on the super cool neighbors who uh, who befriended me when I moved up there because they would be the first to tell me. Like, there's this guy named, uh, he calls himself Mr. Fort Green, and everybody <laughs> calls him that, uh, Mike. And he, you know, every time I'd go out to go to work, uh, he would, you know, you know, Spike Lee's production studio was over there when nothing was here. And mm. so it, I say that to say that the community in and of itself is still there. The people are still there. But the buildings like I mean, I, I stayed across from like this really dope like barbecue spot and you could see the changeover. And I felt like Ford Green in particular, the gentrification just happened on one side of the park. Like when you're on the side with like Lafayette and South Portland that's all the turnover. Mm, but mm. then when you go to the other side, like when you go to Myrtle and Willoughby and all mm. of that, that you can tell that that's not, they haven't come to that side yet. So yeah. you literally have gentrification split by this massive park in the middle. Right. So that album locked in for that reason where when I'm mm. listening to it, you can almost hear most talking about how the city, is the borough is changing over. Yeah. And he's a bed guy, but yeah. he spent a lot of time at Fort Greene right, right. with Talib, so... It just, you know, you could you could hear it on the record, but you definitely have to, like, go see it. Um, and I feel like a lot of old school Brooklyn is still down in, like, Bushwick mm-hmm. and certain parts of Bed-Stuy. Mm-hmm. How does his version of Brooklyn compare to other Brooklyn mm-hmm. rappers? you got a few. you got Little Kim, uh, Jay-Z, Jay-Z Talib, right, Biggie, Master, Master Ace. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Brooklyn, baby. So how does his, his version of Brooklyn compare? You know, um... When I when I think about Most Def's version of Brooklyn, I always I don't know if this is right or wrong, but for whatever reason, I just think of like the old school independent bookstores and yeah. you know things like that, and like the old school like block parties and stuff. Um, but I mean, that's not to say that those versions of Brooklyn aren't in like Biggies and like Lil Kim's and all that uh, music. But for me, at least, and I also I always equate Most Def to somebody like a Nas, where he's very observant. You know, when you listen to Nas is Illmatic, you can tell that he was a kid who he he went out and he absorbed all of these different things. But then he would go back and write about his version of Queensbridge. Rappers are monkey flipping with the funky rhythm. I be kicking, musician, inflicting composition of pain. I'm like Scarface sniffing cocaine, holding the M16. See, with the pen, I'm extreme now. I always felt most was the same way, where it was like, he didn't come across as like, you know, oh, I came up hard, you know, I'm a knucklehead and all of that. He just went out. He noticed that, um, you know, his version of Brooklyn was more community oriented. Mm-hmm. It wasn't as hard as some of the other rappers may portray Brooklyn. Right. And there's a tremendous sense of pride with Brooklyn. Every, like you like you alluded to, like 
everybody who's from Brooklyn will let you know probably by the first song that they're that they're from Brooklyn. <laughs> you know, and most does the same thing, but he does it more so like a uh, like a community like like a rallying cry for Brooklyn. Like, yo, we're from Bed Stuy. Let's protect Bed Stuy the way it used to be. Mm-hmm. You know, and you can even see a little bit of that in uh, uh, Chappelle's Block Party. You know, where yeah. he was like, yeah, the sty is still the sty, and you know, he just. I could always tell that he loves Bed-Stuy, but at the same time, he's sort of, he, he's trying to figure out where the gentrification is going to go next. And there's a lot of that on his record, you know. Mm. I know that from, from friends from Brooklyn. That's, you know, I, I very yeah. rarely say, listen, I'm from L.A., um, unless I'm challenged about L.A. being whack, then I say it. But to your point, Brooklyn people say that immediately. It gets name-checked a lot. So gonna do it like this. We're Brooklyn at. We're Brooklyn at. We're Brooklyn at. We're Brooklyn at. We're gonna do it like this. Every time you write it, check it. When I think of that, I think about most in that cipher with Black Thought and Eminem. Ashland, Abelmar, the Albany, Fred's in the Baltic, Bedford Ave, Bergen Street, Clinton, the Cabin, Church Ave, the Clad and Road, the Central Avenue, Cooper House, Cypress and Live from Bedford Stuyvesant, the Live is high flying as Pilot Bombardier from Pirates. Most whole verse was about New York. I don't know what else he talked about except New York. I mean, it was dope. But it was like a New York primer. It was right. like, you know, the Thomas Guide of New York. So he's very, very proud, um, proud of that. And the I want to go back to what you said about his version of New York because I, I always see it as being very influenced by his faith. So I think of, like, the mosques in Brooklyn. I think about mm-hmm. brothers, you know, Muslim brothers on, on the corner. Yeah. You know, the only outside version of that that I got of most was on that song, God which I thought was sort of like How to Survive in South Central, the Brooklyn version, mm-hmm. because he keeps saying, this is just some shit you don't do when you're from Brooklyn, and it's all about how to remain in possession of your possessions, I guess for lack of a better right, word. Right, I got to ask you, though, how did you come to know this album? And as we asked some of our guests, what format was it for you? Was it CD? Did you get it, did you get it on vinyl? How'd you get it? Uh, for me, it was CD. Hmm? It was CD. That was uh, baller. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Back when CDs were a thing, it was. I was in high school. I was a junior in high school, mm. and um, again, I was always that guy where it's like, yeah, I guess we're talking '98. So I'm like, yeah, that that Wu album was pretty dope. But what about you know this Black Star album? What about this most? Of-? And I remember it came out like right after. It was what uh, Black Star came out like September '98, and then Most Def came out October 12th. Right. Um, so for me, that, that was an introduction and I just went to a Sam Goody one day cause his, the, he had a big full page ad, you know, the album covers just his face. Right. Right. So just a big ad of him in the source. So I was like, oh, most after, you know, the, the dude from, um, the lyricist lounge, you know, like the, what well, he had a song with Q-Tip. Eradicate them, shoot them from the gym, they beat disease. Are you ready to rock the mic? Q-tip, are you ready to rock the mic? Most deaf, are you ready to rock the mic? We got the universe started to got the like. And so that was my first introduction to most. But my introduction mm. to the CD came just in listening to yeah. it. Because that's, that's what I was going to ask is what sort of era of most were you introduced to? So I'm probably roughly about 10 years older than you, but, you know, I first heard most when he was part of UTD. You've been so good to me when I was a little boy. You were the only one I wanted to be, to be like. Around that same time, he started popping up in, in relatively high profile cameos in the mid-90s. So 
He did Bush Babies. He was on the Tribe Called Quest Love Al- Love Movement album. He was on De La Soul's uh, Big Brother Beat off of Stakes Is High. That was, I think, 96. Come on, y'all, get live, get down. What we have is a brand new sound. So don't none of y'all just be misled. The daylight's gonna do the body good like we break. And then it seemed that once he signed up with Rockus, and that was in 97, you mentioned Black Star 98, and then his solo album comes out a year right. after. There was this progression, and it was a snowball that to me felt like an avalanche. And I'm wondering to what extent for each of you, you kind of experienced most the same way. Because for him, he kind of popped up on the radar. It's like, oh, this guy's interesting. And then within two, three years, it's like, no, he is like it. He right. is like right, the next yeah. level, right? Right, right. Well, well for me, um, my intro to this album and to most, mm. well, I knew of I knew of UTD mm-hmm. because I like that song Victory, I like Manifest Destiny, yeah. but I, but I, I didn't really know. I was like, okay, he sounded a little bit different to me on that than he does on this. Right. But my introduction to this album was actually Miss Fat Booty. And she came with the same type game, the type of girl giving out the fake cell phone the name Big Fame. Big she like cats and big things. Jewel ship, money clip, phone flip the six range. Has seen her on the ass spotted her more than once. Ass so fat that you can see her from the front. She spot me like pop. So I was like, wait a minute, in the videos, like, wait. <laughs> so I, it was hard for me to think of him as philosopher when because Miss Fat Booty is, you know what I'm saying? It is, yeah, it's what the song title suggests. Listen, listen. So that was my introduction to him. I didn't know he was going to turn out to be this elder statesman of sort of like this sort of rap style. And 1999 has a whole bunch of other sounding stuff. To your point, Baggy Jeans, but if we could name check a few of these, you got The Life and Times of, of Sean Carter. Y'all cats want to act logo, put them up, numerous shots with the... You got uh, Black Alicious, Nia. You got Roots, Things Fall Apart. Somebody told me that this planet was small. We used to live in the same building on the same floor. And never met before until I'm overseas on tour. And peep this Ethiopian queen from Philly taking class. MF Doom, Operation Doom, which was a heater. Yeah. Uh, let's see, Tech Nine, Calm for the Storm. I want to ask me a question. And then you've got this album and the lead single, Miss Fat Booty, which did not tell me how the rest of the album was going to go. If, you, if the only two singles had been uh, Umi Says and Miss Fat Booty, these are polar opposites. Totally. Completely different. And in between, you've got a variety of different most deaf. So I didn't know he was going to turn out to be the guy that was on Deaf Poetry Jam. Yep. You know what I'm saying? Um, Busta's on this album, which is a completely different song than the rest of them. Yeah, that was so a big feature. To your question, I had no idea that he was going to become this thing and the direction he was going to go yeah. with his rhyming based on Miss Fat Booty. Yeah, it was the same. I, I felt like, you know, you mentioned that snowball effect. It was totally that because, like, just... You mentioned the De La Soul record. That was the first time I heard him, mm. and I didn't know who he was. Mm-hmm. But then me, um, I decided to go back and study who this guy is, you yeah. know. So I went back and I found that he was on that first, that very first Lyricist Lounge CD, and mm-hmm. he was on, uh, him and Talib were on a Fortified Live. I'm always taking shots like a Japanese tourist. Get the picture, fly to Kazasosa, no response. I'm sipping, wishing well, water imported from Pluto. That's why my eyes are glassy, so you ain't got the eyes. So when I heard that, that's when I'm like, okay, who is this guy? And then I remember the video for the song I just mentioned from Lyricist Lounge. It was um, the Lyricist Lounge 2 
record, mm-hmm. um, I believe. It was Most Def, Q-Tip, and uh, Tosh from uh, the Alcoholics. Mm-hmm. And so that, and when I see that video, like you said, it was just, it, it was almost like Rockets was putting this guy out there to say, he's going to be next. Right. Here's the dude. Yeah. So that was my introduction to Most. In looking back now, right, we have the benefit of almost 20 years since this album came out. Do you think that Most held up to the insane expectations that had been put upon him or how or how th- have things turned out differently in with the benefit of hindsight i think it depends on your musical palette mm-hmm. because when the new danger came out five years to the day uh a lot of people didn't like it yeah. because it wasn't black on both sides right. too right right um personally speaking i wasn't mad at it because I realized that, you know, I also looked at a contemporary of his, like somebody like a common where every record sounded totally different. So mm. one day it all makes sense. Sounds nothing like like water for chocolate, which sounds mm-hmm. nothing like B. Mm. And so for that reason, I could appreciate it because at the time, most was running with like common and the roots who did the same thing. Erica would always like mama's gun sounds nothing like Baduism. Right. Yeah. So I wasn't mad at it, but at the same time, parts of it felt a little rushed so to that to that question, I don't think he has. I think mm. I think in the, the subsequent years he's been trying to chase black on both sides, mm. and it just hasn't held up. Mm. And like you know, he had New Danger, then he had the True Magic record, which was just him trying to get out of a deal. Yeah, and then like what was December '99, you know? So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's just when you think of most deaf or Yasin now when you when you look back at his discography everybody's going to look at black on both sides because that was a standard bearer you know he came out really strong and that was his debut album right and i think he was trying to chase that for years and years and just never quite caught up yeah listening to the album and prep for the interview what did you learn about most or about this album that you didn't know or you didn't think of in 1999 when I listen to it now, I hear a person who was totally motivated to create one of the best hip-hop albums of all time. You mm. know, When I first heard it, when I first played it, for me as a, as a kid in high school, it just seemed like, oh, this is a really dope lyricist, and he's doing something yeah. different. He was, he was the counterculture, like I was saying at the beginning. And now, in listening to it, and I've been really, really diving into it since my time in New York, to me, it was almost, and maybe this is just me being the melodramatic writer, but... It almost seemed like he knew this was going to be his best shot. Mm. And so he put everything into that record. So mm. um, like you were saying, like, you know, when you listen to Brooklyn and when you listen to Miss Fat Booty, when you listen to the song Love, I've never mm. heard him rapping like that. Said he was in love when he made me. Thought about it for a second, wasn't hard to see. I could hear he wasn't sincere, wasn't a game of promotion. The entire affair is probably charged with emotion. When love call your heart, I guess you got the pursuit. 12, 11, 7, 3, my life is testament. Praise the beneficent. Element that breath, right? Devoid in the form to make love manifest. You could tell he just threw it all in the studio. And so to go back to your previous question, it almost seems like maybe... I don't know, maybe he was a little spent after that, man. Like, right. you know, because everything is on that album. So even you can go back to it 10 years from now and 10 years from that, and it's still going to have the same resonance because, you know, he was really coming from a deep from a deep place. You know, he had people like Weldon on there and everything. Yeah. So I never really thought about that in terms of the idea that, most first album was his best and that he put everything that he had and maybe just didn't have a lot in the, in the tank. And I mean, this is a phenomenon that you see with a lot of artists who have, you know, it's it's the classic, what, sophomore curse, right? Mm. Sophomore slump. But 
a lot of the contemporaries, Marcus, that you were mentioning, right, Common, Roots, uh, et cetera, I don't think in most of their cases you would say that their first album was their best album. Like Common's Resurrection was certainly held in much higher regard than Can I Borrow a Dollar, um, and people really love B and are maybe Finding Forever. You know, The Roots, probably their second, or I mean, they have, there's so many Roots albums to choose from. I thought Things Fall Apart, which you mentioned earlier, was to me one of the best things they ever put out, but, but not their first album, right? Right. right. And the idea that, that most somehow got it perfect the first time, but was never able to recreate some element of that later, I thought, I, I just never thought about it. But yeah, it's, it's got me pausing now to think of like what other artists who had multiple albums, basically it was, the first one, and it was perfection, and then can never follow it up. And I, I don't know if I can think of that many other folks like that. That's, but that's a, that's a whole show, though. So we should try yeah. and think about that and maybe put together. <laughs> that would be a great show. The uh, one and done. That's it. Yeah, I mean, we almost had that with, well, no, I take that back. I was about to say D'Angelo, but Brown Sugar was great. But then Voodoo, Voodoo. was, and right. then he disappeared, and then Black Messiah. Right. So, or right. the Chronic, and then... Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. That's that's. But but I mean, the Chronic Two Thousand was it? I always get it wrong. Is it the Chronic Two Thousand? Chronic Two Thousand One. Two Thousand One. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which I mean, was not. It wasn't. The, it was it terrible. But it was still pretty good. <laughs> it was. Yeah. It wasn't it, Compton, which is right. definitely like wah wah wah. But anyways. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. but I mean, to bring this back to most and bring it back to sort of that 99 moment, I'm wondering to what extent, too, Marcus, you would think that I think this was kind of maybe the zenith of the ways in which people talked about conscious rap and not in kind of a wink, wink, you know, ironic way. Like the term actually held meaning in a way that people, um, you know, earnestly embraced it and that most was sort of the avatar for that. And then, for whatever reason, because hip hop shifted, conscious rap then became kind of a joke to itself. But back in '99, most could inhabit that. This album could inhabit that in a way where it was earnest and people were seriously embracing it. Mm-hmm. Well, and, um, you know, to that end, I mean, if we're talking about the differences between like Black on Both Sides and then New Danger, hmm. like, one thing I just remembered, like in between that time, he was a serious actor. People forget that. Oh yeah. oh yeah. Like he was in a lot of movies. Hey man, let me ask you something. I'm trying to figure this out. Uh, you driving along in your hurricane, right? There's three people at the bus stop. You know, one is an old lady, she's sick, she about to die. The second one is your best friend. He saved your life. Right? And the third is the girl in your dreams. Right? But check it out. You only got space and car for one person. Right? Who you take? So maybe that kind of pulled at him as well. Yeah. And so in 99, I felt like there was, especially you know, on a label like Raucous, which that's what they did. You know, you had Moshe, you had Taleb, you had Pharaoh Monch. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, I, I felt like to be a conscious rapper on that label at that time was a big deal. And five years later, it wasn't so much a big deal Mm because people weren't really here for it. Mm -hmm. So that's the thing. It's like, it's, it's easy in hindsight to say like, okay, well, you know, maybe conscious, conscious rap wasn't where it needed to be in 2004, Mm. but it's funny. Like in, in now and talking about it, I feel like people would still be here for a most deaf, record and we were talking about this offline about like you know giving advice to people i would love to hear most like a motivated yasin working with knowledge Mm. like a like a yasin knowledge record would be like insane Mm. you know but 
That's the thing, because I feel like people are here for it now, given the political and social yeah, climates, right. that people would be here for a socially conscious uh, LP. Yeah. And maybe a feature with Kendrick. I wouldn't be mad at that either. That would be that would be pretty dope. Getting on that, you know, there was a lot of consciousness and awareness on this album. One of my favorite tracks on this on this album is Rock and Roll. Oh, yeah. Because he makes the distinction. I mean, I like how he shouts out Elvis Presley um, in a bad way. Elvis Presley ain't got no soul. Chuck Berry is rock and roll. You may dig on the Rolling Stones, but they ain't come up with that style on their own. Elvis Presley ain't got no soul. Little Richard is rock and roll. You may dig on the Rolling Stones, but they ain't come up with that shit on their own. Has Elvis ever been shouted out in a good way in a rap song? I mean, let's. No. Okay. But it's just sort of more educational, like, listen, if you think that he started it, he didn't start it. And that's one of my favorite. It's like, it's I see most deaf as a teacher. And um, this is a song where he's just breaking it down to you for those that, I don't think any of his fans, to your point, thought that Elvis Presley was the king of rock and roll. <laughs> this is the song where it's like, wait, no. He mentions Chuck Berry. He mentions the Stones. He mentions uh, Elvis Presley. And I love that, that it's a music song about music and about um, debunking some of the things that you thought about music. You're right. And, and it's clever. And that's the thing, like, um, and you just mentioned it where it was educational, where for me, when I'm listening to that, I'm like, you know, at the time I didn't, I didn't have a working knowledge of Nina Simone. Mm. Right. So I'm like, Nina, I'm like, okay, Chuck Berry. So I'm just writing down all these names, like, oh, I need to check all this out. But then I knew, like, oh, Elvis, like, I mean, no one really, really messed with Elvis anyway, so, you know, but. I don't know. I mean, to me, Chuck D just straight up ethered Elvis back in 88. <laughs> yeah, he killed that. That was it. That was a rap. It was a rap for Elvis and hip hop, you know. Elvis was a hero to most, but he never meant shit to me. Yes, he's straight out racist. The sucker was simple and plain. Motherfucking in John Wayne. But it's just, it's just a, a beautiful song to me about the genesis of music, where it comes from and where it does not come from. And I loved him in the role of... Uh, of, of educator there's always to me I went to HBCs and there was always a brother like that tapping the side of his head like you know you really gotta <laughs> you gotta be tapped in <laughs> you know brothers like that that you're just like oh be, yeah be woke about this thing I and know that's what that song reminded me of him tapping the side of his head right be woke about that Guess that's just the way you go. You steal my clothes and try to say they yo. Yes, they do. Business is so filled with pimps and hoes. Trying to take everything that you made in control. There they go. Elvis Presley ain't got no soul. Bo Diddley is rock and roll. You made it go on the Rolling Stones. But they ain't the first place the credit belongs to. We will be back in just a moment with more of our conversation with Marcus Moore about most deaths, black and both sides. After a brief word from some of our sibling Max Fun podcasts, keep it locked. Friendly Fire is a war movie podcast, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't listen to it. Boy, I'll say, you know, a lot of people, Ben and Adam, might not initially watch a war movie podcast. What's in it for me, they say. Yeah. I'll tell you what's in it for you. What's in it for you is a biting socio-political commentary, uh, scattered dick and fart jokes. (laughs) <laughs> and a lot of history like there's the depicted wars but also the history of the time period that these films were made and released they're very telling so download friendly fire every friday from your favorite podcatcher or maximumfun.org we've all made mistakes in book club right you drink a little too much you don't actually read the book. And if you're under the bubble in Fairhaven, 
Your individual will get subsumed by the collective. Hey, maybe I just let him go and whip us up some guac. We do not require guac. We require only nutrients and expansion. You will become Book Club. You will eat, pray, and love with us. Join Book Club. Bubble, the sci-fi comedy from MaximumFun.org. Just open your podcast app and search for Bubble. We are back on Heat Rocks talking to Marcus Moore about most deaths black on both sides. What was the fire track off this album for you back then? Um, for me, it was Love. Mm. Mm. The song Love was the first one um, because I just loved the way he was uh, just talking about his own upbringing. You know, my folks said they wasn't love when they made me, you know, when he would just get into his own personality. I thought that was great. My early years in Roosevelt projects, it was a bright valley with some dark prospects. In 83, Vandy C was the host with the most. I listened to the rap attack and held the radio close. I listened to the rap attack and held the radio close. This was far before the days of high glamour and post. Hey yo, power from the streetlight made the place dark. I know a few understand what I'm talking about. It was love. But then, me being. I, you know, I had that thing where I was to do sometimes tapping Tap the side of it. Okay, that confession. A little Confe- bit, a little bit. <laughs> so when I got to New World Water, that was the one where I was like, yeah, you need to really think about what's going on underneath the surface, dude. You That's know, I was, I was that dude in college, yeah. so yeah. That's it. New World Water make the tide rise high. Come in, land, and make your house go by. Fools done upset the old man river. Made him carry slave ships and fed him dead niggas. Now his belly full and he about to flood something. So I'm throwing rope that ain't tied to nothing. Tell your crew who's the H2 and wise amounts. It's the new world water and every drop counts. I always was wondering, and I, maybe I knew this at some point, but to me that always felt like an homage to Karis One's Beef, which was a song mm. about the beef industry. Beef. What a relief. When will this poisonous product cease? This is another public service announcement. You can believe it or you can doubt it. Let us begin now with the cow. The way it gets to your plate and how. The cow doesn't grow fast enough for man. So through his greed, he makes a faster plan. But yeah, not a lot of people were rapping about water. No. And now, you know, 10, well, actually not 10, like 20 years, almost 20 years later, you got the Flint, Michigan thing. It's like, yeah. Yep, most new, man. Well, and the tap, same thing. Tap the side of your head. Tap the side of your head, brother. Listen. And it was the same thing. Like, I also uh, equated it to uh, Fela. Mm. Water, no water, no get enemy. If you want to go wash, no water you go use. If you want to cook soup, no water you go use. One of my favorite tracks, or what I think is the fire track. Obviously, we could talk about the singles, but I love Climb. People climbed into the nightlife space. People stepped into the nightlife moon. Climb is my thing. Um, Vinny and Mojica 
um, this was my introduction to her. I later on, you know, got into her with her work with geology. But it's so sensitive. I love him singing. I love that part of him. Um, I love him singing on Umi Says. It's just different on, on Climb. It's one of my favorites. I love, I mean, obviously I love every song on this record, but Climb is one that when it's time to go back and revisit the album, you know, if I don't feel like playing it front to back, I definitely go to track 12. I think it was track 12, yeah. 11 or 12. But yeah, I go back to that and uh, definitely listen to that because it's still a hip hop song, Yeah. but it also classifies as soul, it can classify as ambient, atmospheric, whatever, you name it, you know, and I think he checks all those boxes. And Vinia, I mean, Vinia was amazing. Ugh. Still amazing. Killed it in that era. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm wondering, Marcus, when you, know, when you first encountered Mose in terms of his singing qualities, again, back in that era, you, were, you did not see a lot of rappers also crooning. And I'm wondering, what did you think of, of that style back then, if you recall? It was, it was jarring um, a little bit, you know, because everything about hip-hop in the late 90s was... It was more assertive. Yeah. You know? It was quote unquote hard. You know? It was like hardcore, you yeah. know, like New York Street rap, right, mo- right. Mob Deep, all that. Yeah. So when you had somebody like Most who was singing on a song, like the first thing that jarred me was Umi Says. It was mm-hmm. like, okay, I like this song, but I, maybe I shouldn't. When we're debating rap in high school, we're like, yo, no, Eminem versus Method Man or whatever. So when you have this record, it really broke down a lot of barriers because people who were so-called like hardcore rap dudes, they had to admit that they liked this as well because you can't get away from the musicality of this album. You can't get away from how like how beautiful he sounds on it. Yeah. You know, so. But to your point, he has so many elements on here. So if you just wanted the hardcore, you know, raps or whatever, you had that. But then if you just wanted to chill out, you know, if you wanted to listen to something that kind of takes you down after a long day, listen to Climb or listen to May, December or whatever. It had a little bit of everything on it. So when I first heard it, it definitely took me a couple of spins to lock in because I was so deep into other kinds of hip hop that Mm. it it took a little minute and and it helped introduce me to stevie wonder you know because mm-hmm. then i only had a cursory knowledge of stevie so it forced me to go get talking book and to get um you know intervisions intervisions yeah. and all of that so yeah yeah morgan i wanted to come back to your point about miss fat booty and how much it really stands out as a bit of a sore thumb uh, because it's so unlike you know it's, it's in its sensibility the rest of the album it is and on the one hand it would probably be my fire track only because it's the one song that, and it has very little to do with the content. It's all about the fact that Ayatollah, who produced it, yeah. takes this really obscure or at least semi-obscure Aretha Franklin, Columbia Years, pre-Atlantic Years song called One Step Ahead mm-hmm. and flips it into this insanely hot track. I know I can't afford to stop for one more. I'm just out of reach of your fingertips. I know I can't afford to stop. 
I oftentimes forget that the song itself, I do not think it really ranks, like just on a lyrical content point of view, it's really not Moses' best work at all. Like it's, right. <laughs> there's not like really a lot of depth to it. Mm-mm. But my God, does that track bump. It bangs, yeah. how he rides that beat. But it also is most deaf being vulnerable. Usually club nights don't end like that with brothers that start out like that. Yeah, right, right, but he's right. here to tell you like, yo, so I kept calling her yeah. <laughs> and she just She did. ghosted me. Right. And then I go back to the club and she's with someone else. But that's one of the dopest, I mean, that's one of the dopest songs on the album. And if we could, I wanted to name check a few of these samples because we got We can't talk about this album without talking about the samples. Because yeah. I wanted to ask you what some of your favorites are. But some of the people that were featured on here, Oliver mentioned Aretha. He's got the Fatback Band on here. Uh, Roy Ayers, We Live in Brooklyn. He's got Fela. He's got Stanley Clark. Are there any favorites that you have? For me, the way he sampled uh, Roy, because I've always loved that song, We Live in Brooklyn. We live in Brooklyn. That was the one that made me go and like check out all of Roy Ayer's stuff. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, mm. and that's the thing. Again, I listen to music in that way, where it's like I'm the guy who's still like reading the liner notes, you know, seeing who, oh, who played keys on that or sure. what, what was that sample. So that in particular. But since we were just talking about Miss Fat Booty, definitely um, that Aretha sample as well, because you'll still hear it every so often, yeah. one step, like in a cafe. Yeah. Oh yeah, and it's funny to. Do this if you if you don't already. Like when it comes on, just sit back and watch people, and you can see like when it comes to the sample, right. they're like, oh, like oh, that song. <laughs> That's I do a lot. You get a lot of that in Brooklyn naturally, but yeah. What's okay? Sorry. Oh, I was gonna say I love how he how he sings. Um, I think he name checks Gregory Isaacs in there, yeah, he did, and then yeah. he sings yeah, a little part of the. Like Shout <laughs> out to Gregory Isaacs. Okay, yeah, dope, damn it. Yeah. She won't always smile and sing a Gregory Isaacs like If I don't, if I don't, I don't Show me a tan line and a tattoo but let's talk about the sleeper tracks, and maybe it could be something that uh, you really like now that you weren't really checking for back then, or a song that you just feel like you know flew below the radar then and now. Mathematics. Bucka, 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 bucka. You know the devil. This is me, though. Beast by Supremo for all of my people, Negroes and Latinos. It's buried at the very end, and I mean, I love me some DJ Premier, but that beat wasn't his best beat, you know? Because it was a good beat, but... I'm clutching my pearls right now. (laughs) (laughs) No, hear me out, hear me out. Mathematics, it was it was solid. It, it did what it was supposed to do, and he gave most the soundtrack that he needed. But it didn't really resonate mm. to me mm. as long. And I think it also uh, is because of what you spoke to, where it's like it's right before the last song on the album. Right. You're on track 16. And so by then you're like, okay. But 
I don't know. That was a sleeper for me now that when I go back and listen to it, I'm like, what was I thinking? This is an amazing song. Yeah. But at the time, I would always skip to it, skip over it and go to May, December. May December was unexpected for me. Um, I thought it was a great way to end the album, but I was I was surprised when that came in. That's also is that premiere too? No, no. I think that was like oh, most and well. Yeah, we did a lot of stuff on this album. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. But one of the prettier tracks um, on the album, and like I said, there's so many tracks on this album to choose from. But and I should have mentioned that as one of my fire tracks. I just I just got caught up elsewhere, but I was surprised at, at how he ended that. But I thought it was a perfect way. Yeah, totally. And um, to me, at least, it, it kind of reminds me of uh, like an old like Frankie Beverly and Mays kind of mm-hmm. thing, you know, um, golden time of day mm-hmm. sort of situation where for me, like when I first started spinning it, uh, I would always play that like on a Saturday, total cliche, like it would be summertime, it's Saturday evening, it's like seven. You know, roll the mm. windows down and play sure, it. Sure, sure. <laughs> that's what always. That's how it always re- always resonated with me. But I feel like, like you guys were saying, where there is a fatigue that I think starts to set in around like Brooklyn Habitat. Yeah, yeah. where it's like, okay, this is great, but I, all this crazy stuff right. at the beginning, then it comes back to this, and it's a really good conclusion to the album. And um, yeah, um, the fact that it was instrumental was also a very big risk. Exactly, and I'm glad that he had the good sense not to want to flow over it mm-hmm. because it's perfect all by itself. I don't, I don't think it needed lyrics. Right, my right. opinion. So, Marcus, for you, Black on Both Sides, was this album right on time, ahead of its time, or timeless? I believe it was. I be, what can it only be one answer? Or yeah. can it be? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm being hardcore. Take it. Yeah. How, no, no, take it however yeah. you want. Okay, I'll stick with one. Timeless. I think it's timeless. Mm. Um, Because, again, the fact that we're talking about it and we have such good feelings around it now, 20 years later, almost 20 years later, speaks to its timelessness. Mm -hmm. You know, when I listen to it, it's a hip hop record, but I feel like it resonates on the same level as like a What's Going On or like Mm -hmm. a Songs in the Key of Life or a Talking Book or whatever, where even 20 years from now, people will find it again and talk about it once more. So, definitely a timeless album. And I think you also um, get not just black on both sides, but you get most on both sides. You get uh, most as vulnerable. You get him as gritty. Mm-hmm. You get him as the philosopher. You get him as the student. You get him as questioning. Mm-hmm. I don't want to write this, you know, tomorrow may never come. You get all sides of, of most. And I'm just glad that the album was made. Marcus, if you had to describe this album in three words and with only three words, what would, the, what would those three words be? And I know as a writer, every time we have a writer on that, they hate this question. <laughs> and so, so we apologize. Yeah, we, we, yeah exactly. No, it's your show. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a guest. I'm a guest. I do what, I do what I'm told. Um, a love letter. Oh, mm. that was actually quick. I like that. Boom. And it's three words. There it is. Yes, Marcus. That'll do it for this episode of Heat Rocks with our special guest, writer and cultural critic Marcus Moore. Thank you for coming in and sitting down with us and bringing us this album again to revisit. Where can people find you? Um, I work full-time at Bandcamp, so uh, bandcamp.com is a good place to find me. Also on Twitter, my uh, my Twitter handle is Marcus J. Moore altogether. 
And uh, Instagram, underscore, at Marcus J. Moore. You've been listening to Heat Rocks with me, Morgan Rhodes, and Oliver Wang. Our theme music is Crown Ones by Thess One of People Under the Stairs. Shout out to Thess for the hookup. Heat Rocks is produced by myself, Oliver Wang, and Shana Deloria. This episode was engineered by Shana and edited by Oliver. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and executive producer is Jesse Thorne. We are part of the Maximum Fund family, taping every week live in their studios in the Fat Booty and Wise Umi's neighborhood of Westlake in Los Angeles. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Heat Rocks Pod. You can find a link to our Facebook group on our webpage, heatrockspod.com. That's where we will post show notes for every episode, including a track listing of everything that you've heard today and other goodies. Again, that's at heatrockspod.com. We also wanted to thank our social media fans out there, including Tywo Heard. Tywo's been hanging with us from the beginning. Thank you so much. Stephanie Carter at Carter67Carter. We also want to thank, again, as uh, as Oliver mentioned, NPC, NPC Hero for shouting us out mm. continuously. Thank you. Mike Noble for giving us some love. Thank you, Mike. And we also want to thank Spumante Carlo. Okay. <laughs> Shout out to Spumante Carlo. And finally, Ashley Dior Thomas. We do so appreciate the tweezies and retweezies. Good to see you, Oliver. Good to see you too, Morgan. And before we head up out of here, enjoy this teaser from next week's episode, which features comedian Eliza Skinner, who is part of the new Max Fun scripted comedy bubble, talking about the Pretty in Pink soundtrack. I had a turntable that I got from the thrift store and uh, no money, so I would just buy dollar records from dollar bins, and I got this and mm. a dollar record bin. And all of these tracks are just gateways into amazing different bands and, and genres and like whole sounds that I didn't have any kind of access to otherwise. Plus, as much as I do <laughs> a lot of rap stuff, I mean, I'm the head writer of a, a rap TV show, Drop the Mic. Um, I don't, I don't consider myself an expert on that. I don't consider myself an expert on this either. But like, I don't feel like I need to be another white girl giving my opinions about rap. Um, Appreciate that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I'm, I'm glad. Um, there, are, there are enough people doing that. So I'll tell you about new wave. Okay. <laughs> That's that. I feel like I, English people, I can get that. We are here for that. Yeah. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.